0: Hello, and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9 a.m. or for our more traditional service at 11 a.m. We also stream full services live on our Facebook page. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. So we have two weeks between last week's conclusion of our Articles of Religion Worship series and the start of our Fall Worship series, which will kick off the Sunday after all of our children and teenagers go back to school at Albemarle Public Schools. And so we had these two weeks and we were trying to figure out what exactly to do with those two weeks. And so I went back to the first sermon series I ever preached. At my last church, I was the associate pastor, so there was a senior pastor who was in charge over me, and at his desire, we preach the lectionary, which means that we use this very classic rotation that turns over every three years, and there's a set number of scriptures for every Sunday you have an Old Testament reading a psalm a gospel and a New Testament reading so you have four readings for every week and if you come from the Roman Catholic tradition or the Anglican tradition or even some uh, Episcopalian Methodist or Lutheran traditions you might have become acquainted with the lectionary and so at this church that we had we would pick one of those texts and that would be the text for the sermon And that is fine, there's nothing wrong with a lectionary, but sometimes you get a little confined. You think like I would like to go a little somewhere else in the scriptures other than what was given to you. And my senior pastor had a real comfort in just the Gospels. So you got a lot of the Gospel and you didn't get a lot of anything else. And so he said to me one day, I am going to be gone for two Sundays in a row and you are in charge of worship. And I thought, This is the moment and I will do a worship series. I mean, it was only a two part worship series, but it was more than I had ever done before. And so I decided to do something that we don't normally do. I preached from the gospels, but I preached about an aspect of Jesus we don't always pay a lot of attention to, snarky Jesus. And I love our graphic that says sarcasm is looting. Because it is, right? Sarcasm is to say words but mean the opposite. And Americans have gotten very good at sarcasm. In fact, some people might feel like it's a spiritual gift that has gone unrecognized because they are so comfortable in sarcasm. And Jesus is actually using snark in our scripture today. And snark may or may not utilize sarcasm, but it definitely offers criticism. It's a commentary. And sometimes, most of the time, it's a little cranky. And Jesus is a little cranky. He's concerned, he's been looking at what is going on with the Pharisees, and he's kind of had it up to here. And just like us, we all have a breaking point, and Jesus decides, just as God the Father does in the Old Testament, to finally just call it out for what it is. And so the story begins today with a Pharisee who is a very well-respected, privileged person, not only socially, but religiously, asking Jesus to dinner, offering hospitality, which is what a good Jew should do, and offering Jesus to come to dinner. Jesus says yes. Jesus gets there and he doesn't wash his hands. Now, I know a lot of us are like, ugh. Okay, but first, remember that they didn't have dial and hand sanitizer and they hadn't been through a global pandemic, and so they didn't understand the cleanliness in the same way we do. And it was more of kind of a ritual. It was an outward visual of kind of shifting from work mode into eating mode. And so they would have a bowl of water and everyone who was going to be dining would come in and just kind of dip their hands in the water and wash their hands off in the water. There wasn't soap to be used or anything like that. And by the way, after a while, I'm sure that that bowl was really gross. Right, And also remember, Jesus isn't out there working with his hands. He's in earthly ministry. He's preaching and teaching. Now he wasn't always the cleanest person because he was homeless and itinerant, but he wasn't filthy like he had been out there working, um, slaughtering animals or messing around in the mud because he was a farmer. Instead, Jesus had relatively clean hands. And so he came in and he sat down and because he's God incarnate and omniscient, he understands the problem that the Pharisee has. He's amazed, according to the scriptures, that Jesus didn't wash his hands. And so Jesus decides to address this with him. And he starts out by saying, that the Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and wickedness. And that's true. I mean, outwardly to look at a Pharisee, they were well-groomed, well-dressed. They usually because they had income and they had the means by which to do all of this. They didn't have to work in the field. They didn't have to work with their hands. They were people who were literally paid to read, discuss and teach the scriptures. It's a pretty good gig, you know? We pay college professors to do this now. And that's what they did. They were the scholars of the scriptures. And unlike the Sadducees, the priests in Jerusalem who oversee the temple, they're just interested in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Instead, the Pharisees have the full canon of the Old Testament. Not only do they know the Torah, but they also know the historical books. They know the prophetic books. They have access to a greater canon and they're very well read and in fact they've been so well read that they actually have come to believe in resurrection when the sadducees the priests don't they also know very well the messianic prophecies because they have access to isaiah they have read the minor prophets and they know that god has promised through the prophetic word to send the messiah And so they've been given these incredible gifts and these insight, and what are they doing with it? Well, they're putting on a nice show, but Jesus sees what's within, and what is within? Well, apparently, in this Pharisee's case, greed and wickedness, and Jesus isn't too happy about that. He goes on to say, you fools, did not the one who make the outside make the inside also? So you give alms, that's giving finances and gifts to the poor giving so that the poor can have something because you have so much you give those alms for the things that are within and everything will be clean if you want to purge yourself of greed and wickedness then you do that by being selfless and giving and blessing that's one of the ways that you do that and so he kind of gets on a tear you ever had that where you thought you were just gonna say something and then you just you know had a sermon and so he does that he keeps going but woe to you pharisees For you tithe mint and rue and herbs of all kind. All right, let's just pause there for a second. So your tithe is 10%, the first 10% of your labor, right? You call the first fruits of your labor. So if you had an orchard, then when you had harvest, you would bring in your first few bushels and that would be your tithe. So what is the fruit of the labor of the Pharisees? Apparently it's an herb garden. Mint and roux, and I know that if we were in New Orleans, I'd have to define the difference between this roux and that roux. This is an herb roux, it's not the basis for Creole cooking. Um, But here we have something, by the way, those are pretty common. I mean, it would've been like me as a child on my walks being like, hi, mom and dad, I bring you a tithe of the honeysuckle that I found. Like, it's just everywhere, it's not a big deal. Or if you came in here and you tithe kudzu, congratulations, it's all over Virginia. And so you have these things here where it's like, It's almost just perfunctory. It's not really deep and meaningful. And it's like, so the most that you do with your hands is grow an herb garden. Cool, awesome, okay. So that's where they start. They're just tithing some herbs. That's what they really have to give, and yet they clearly have more income than that. And then they neglect justice and the love of God. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. It's not one or the other, it's both. Jesus says these are the things that you should have practiced without neglecting the others. So yes, we do practice our religiosity by bringing our tithe before the Lord. That's good, a right, and hopefully a joyful thing. But we also need to make sure that we tend to the very things that the prophets call us into account for, justice and love. But the Pharisees have picked tithing, mint and rue and herbs, and not justice and love. And so Jesus goes on, woe to you, Pharisees, for you love to have the, seat, the high seat in the synagogues and you love to be recognized in the marketplaces, but you're not paying attention to what's really important. It's not about you. It's about God. And you've been given an incredible gift. You have been given the opportunity to be immersed as a job in God's word that should bear fruit in your life. It shouldn't just be the fact that you know a lot and you tell people a lot and then you go on and do whatever you want. That's not how it works to you. And so Jesus has high expectations for them. For as Jesus repeatedly says throughout the Gospel accounts, to those whom much is given, much is expected. He doesn't just want the best for the Pharisees. Jesus is not an opponent to the Pharisees. They think they're an opponent to Jesus, but Jesus is not. Jesus, God incarnate, loves the Pharisees, just like he loves all of us. But the problem is he also doesn't just want the best for them, he wants the best from them. You've been given unfettered access to God's holy word, and he expects that they would then use that to bless other people if people are wondering what justice looks like the pharisees know they know what the prophets have said from isaiah to hosea they know what the prophets have said they know how to biblically undergird the arguments to make love a way of life and yet they don't they're spending their time criticizing jesus and for what what is jesus major crime Oh well, he didn't wash his hands one night before dinner because none of us have ever done that. And one time on the Sabbath, his apostles were walking with him through a grain field and they reached out and gleaned some of the grains of the wheat to eat because, oh by the way, they were starving and homeless. And the Pharisees were watching that and they critiqued them by saying that it was wrong to do work on the Sabbath. Well, I have news for you. Everybody eats on the Sabbath, everybody. And they didn't have anything to eat. And I don't know if you've ever had grain right off the stock. It is not great. You must be pretty desperate and hungry if that's what you're eating. And so they did. They were hungry and they were desperate. And instead of saying, these people are really hungry, maybe we should feed these people, they critiqued them for working on the Sabbath. These are also the people that said to Jesus, why would you heal that woman? Why would you he-? She has been bleeding like this for 18 years. You couldn't wait one more day? I mean, this is the same guy who said, you know, I'm going to forgive people of their sins. And they went, you can't do that. You're not God. Um, spoiler alert, yes, he is. He's God. And they're just so offended. You can't forgive these people. How, you can't eat with these people and touch these people. What's wrong with you? They're dirty. And they'll make you dirty too. And so Jesus has kind of reached the threshold with them. He's a little upset, a little frustrated, and he's going to let it all out, which he does. And then there's kind of like this little pause in the scripture right and then you know when jesus is on a rant just be quiet right just be quiet but oh no 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 they're not alone at dinner so here's what happens next one of the lawyers answers him um teacher uh, when you say these things you're really kind of insulting us too to which jesus responds oh you want a piece of this okay fine your turn woe to you lawyers You load people up with burdens, hard to bear, and you won't even lift a finger to ease them, right? Lawyers are not bad people, right? We have lawyers in our congregation. There are lawyers who are Christians. They're wonderful people. But then there are people who use their knowledge of the law to create really heavy contracts, right? To create legalism that is heavy on people. And if you ever had to sign a lease or a mortgage or, you know, a college loan, then you know that that paperwork, like, why do they make paper that long? Right? They have really long biomes of paper and it's really thick and you're like, I could have just read the Bible, all right? Instead, we have these legalistic contracts. And the job of the lawyers in Jesus' day was supposed to say, let's just make sure that everything is in accordance with the Mosaic law that's given to us in Leviticus and Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Let's just make sure that everything's okay and then people can live their lives. But instead, they kept piling on all of these addendums and these issues, and instead of feeling safe and secure or guided, people felt burdened. I mean, think about all the paperwork you've ever signed in your life. How would you like to wear that around in a backpack? Right, no, but that's what they were doing. They were making it harder for people. They had been given the gift of wisdom and they should have used it to help liberate people, but instead they made it harder for them. And so Jesus then gets on a little bit about the lawyers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your ancestors killed. I mean, they've got some money now. I mean, some lawyers do, right? They have some money and they've started building tombs and monuments to prophets who, by the way, were killed by their ancestors. So it's like, we knew that it was wrong, so we'll kind of make it better by building them a monument, but they're still dead. And so Jesus says, that lays at your feet, too. You knew it was wrong, and now you're making it okay, right? These are the very people that now you are responsible for because you're not offering the critique of how wrong it was to kill them. And why were you killing them? Oh, because like me, they're saying what God has a problem with. Because we all love it, right, when God tells you what's wrong with you. Don't you love that? You ever been praying or reading scripture and you're like, let's just have a love fest, God. I just wanna love on you, and then you, you, know, you can love on me a little bit, and then you know, I'll say amen and we can go to bed. But instead, sometimes you're in prayer or you're reading your scripture, and then all of a sudden, it's like snarky Jesus is in your head. And Jesus is like, yeah, let's talk about this for a minute. I know you think that this is about her, but I'm actually talking to you too. And you're like, no, no, no. We were supposed to be like together on this against her. Why are why are you undermining the unity that we have right now, Jesus? And instead, Jesus is like, you know, we need to look at what's going on here, right? Uh, Jesus says it a lot. Don't try to fix the speck in your neighbor's eye till you deal with the log in your own. And the lawyers and the Pharisees had pretty big logs. But they made their living and spent their lives trying to find specs, not removing specs, trying to find them in other people's eyes. They were not biblical optometrists, and Jesus didn't like what they were doing. And so he told them how he felt, because he expects better from them. And so he goes on to say, you've taken away the key to knowledge. You have been given the key to wisdom, and you have it, and you've locked the door so that no one else can go through it, and you are too sm- dumb to even go through the door either. You're over here with the rest of them. You should have gone through the door at least. And then he goes outside, and I'm trying to figure out, did Jesus rant through all of dinner, or like did he rant and then just leave and abandon dinner? I'm not really sure which. I mean, I'm sure that there have been plenty of dinners where you were like, I wish he'd just eat. But instead, he goes outside, and now that he's not yelling at them, they decide, oh, this is a good time for us to engage in conversation with him. The Pharisees and the scribes begin to get very hostile toward him. Why? Because we love it when God tells us that we're not perfect. That's why we kill the prophets anyway. And then they cross-examine him about many things, because now they are lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. They didn't like what he said, so now they wanna punish him. But the problem is he's God incarnate and you're not gonna catch him in saying something wrong. But they don't like the way they've been made to feel. They don't like that. They have been made to feel this big. They have been taken off their seats of honor. They have been humiliated. They have also been made to feel as if they are not successful. Now, Jesus hasn't told them their epic failures yet, but Jesus has told them you're not doing the right thing. And they don't like that. I mean, which one of you wanna get up and get verbally berated by your savior today, right? Nobody really likes that. But instead of saying, you know what? This must really be bad if Jesus is willing to do this. Instead, they they decide to turn it around and try to make it Jesus' fault. He's the problem. If you just get rid of Jesus, all of this will stop. Sure, okay. Well, here's the kicker. Jesus brings in the prophets when he starts talking to the lawyers. He starts talking about how they killed the prophets. And by the way, there is a huge prophetic tradition of snarkiness in the Bible, gigantic. All the prophets get very, very snarky. You start with Moses, right? Moses, who starts off trying to be polite and tell God, you know, I really don't want to go back, you know, to the country where I murdered somebody and I'm like on the lamb and go back there and, you know, go to Pharaoh, the very person that I really don't want to see. I don't really want to go back there. And you're trying to make me do it. And here's a whole bunch of reasons why I shouldn't. And God says, I have an answer for all of your questions. And nope, you get to go and do it. And finally, on number five, Moses goes, okay, here's the, (laughs) let me just get honest with you. I don't want to do it. I don't want to go. I don't want to go and do this at all. I don't don't just want to do it. And God goes, tough luck. You're doing it. Go. And so Moses goes, and then he gets a little snarky throughout the whole thing, right? And then eventually they get through Egypt and they get out into the wilderness and then he's now stuck with these people, right? The people that he just liberated from 400 years of bondage and slavery in Egypt. The same people who were like, you know, maybe 400 years of bondage and slavery weren't that bad because at least we had cucumbers. Those people. And so he gets out there and nothing he does is good enough. They're not happy with anything that he does. They complain about manna. You didn't have to grow the grain, pick the grain, bleach the flour. You didn't have to make the cakes. You got the cakes and you're still complaining. I mean, he just can't win. So finally he goes, God, your people, your people that you gave to me, your people, they're driving me crazy. You know, why did you get, I don't, I didn't give birth to these people. These are your people. little snarky. It's okay, they work through it. And then you get to the next great prophet in the Old Testament, you get to Elijah. Elijah is known as the second Moses. He does a lot of the same incredible, miraculous gifts and displays that Moses did. And so Elijah comes on the scene and Elijah is not just snarky, he's melodramatic. He has this huge battle, right? Where, where he goes out onto Mount Carmel and it's just little Elijah over here battling for Yahweh, God the Father. And then you have hundreds of prophets and priests of Baal and Asherah over here against him and he triumphs and he wins on behalf of Yahweh. And then they, you know, they get rid of, they slaughter all of the, the wayward prophets and priests over here and they have this like, epic win of this battle. And then Jezebel, Queen Jezebel goes, you know what, what you just did to my priests and my prophets, I'm gonna kill you. And he's like, oh, now I'm in trouble. So then he flees out to the wilderness because he wants God to kill him. So he goes out to the wilderness and he's like all grumpy and sassy. And God's like, take a nap and eat. And then he wakes up and God says, okay, take another nap and eat some more and then we'll talk. And then he gets to see God and he's like, I'm the only one left, Lord. There's only me. I'm the only prophet. Meanwhile, a couple chapters later, there's like all these prophets. Where did they come from? So he's like, it's only me, and Jezebel is coming to kill me, so it would just be better if I died. God's like, okay, um, I will not accept your resignation yet. I have three more things I need you to do, including now get the new prophet, because apparently you're done. And then you can retire in a chariot of fire. We'll call it a day. So then he goes out and he has to do some things and then he um, ends up anointing and ordaining the next prophet, Elisha. Not to be confused with Elijah, Elisha. And Elisha is not just snarky, but he's nonverbal about it. So Elijah. You know, he's gone and Elisha now is the reigning prophet and he's walking all around and he happens to walk by a city or a big town, whichever one it was. He walks by this place and 42 young kids come running out and they decide to mock him because he could be both the founder and the president of the hair club for men. Very bald. And so I, I, I'm hoping it reads better in Hebrew, but they basically get out and go, hey, baldy, hey, baldy. And he's so, it hurts in his heart, they poke his heart here, and he's so hurt that without saying anything back to them, he calls forth two she-bears to maul all the kids. Could you imagine if you had the power to call out she-bears to maul somebody who was ticking you off? That's what he did. He didn't even say anything. He wasn't even like, that's not nice, or do you know who I am? He's just like, ladies. And they mauled these kids. Now, that's probably not the way that we should use our prophetic power, but it is kinda cool. And so he too has this kind of snarky response to things. So when Jesus gets snarky, you would think the Pharisees who very well know Moses, Elijah, and Elisha would recognize like, oh, this is like the prophetic tradition. No, instead they get really hurt. You've embarrassed me, you've upset me, right? Jesus wants you to be your best and you're upset for Jesus having high expectations. Well, that's what happens when God shows up in human form. High expectations. Right, And that's the same thing for us. God has high expectations for us. We are those who have been blessed and given things that most of humankind could not even fathom. We have been not only created in God's image, which means that we have incredible potential because the standard by which we were created was perfection. And we have been forgiven, redeemed, restored, reconciled to that same God. And what are we doing with it? What are we doing? We just sang a hymn about loving to tell the story. Are we telling the story? How are we telling the story? What are we doing? The Pharisees had the stories. They knew the stories. They knew them backwards and forwards and they could cite them whenever they wanted to put a verbal smack down on their competitors and their opponents, but they didn't do anything with the story. And instead, they wanted to tell stories about how awful Jesus was. Notice we kept those in the Gospels. Instead, It's about giving back from what we have received. Much has been given to us. And I can tell you now that for at least the last two decades, scholars from inside and outside of Christianity have been in a big debate about whether you are in the closing days of Christianity. About whether or not the church's golden age has passed and the church is not just in decline, it is on hospice. And it will die. That's the debate that's happening. And why is that? Because there were probably times in the life of the church when we, like the Pharisees, got so obsessed with certain things that we neglected the others. That we didn't pay attention to what we were really supposed to be focusing on. And then when Jesus or somebody who was embodying the risen Christ said it to us, we got really upset with those people. Well, if you don't like it, you can leave. That's one of the ways that we have acted across time and space in the church. Instead of going, maybe there's something going on here and maybe we need to look at it. Maybe we're not saying what we mean to say. Maybe we're not doing what we're called to do. Maybe, maybe we could be doing things in a more impactful way or maybe we need to phrase it differently. On Thursday at my last Bible study meeting, I was talking about this. There was a person who had come to my last church, probably because of my awesome Snarky Jesus mini-series. But this person came to the church and they had come from a mega church in Tennessee. Huge church. I mean, the church's annual budget, I believe was about $1.5 million a year. Huge. And this church had allocated in a line item $100,000 for coffee and donuts. It's a lot of coffee and donuts. Or very expensive premium coffee and donuts, I'm not sure which. But this person was very upset about it. They said, could you imagine coffee and donuts? Whoa to you, Tennessee, coffee and donuts, right? Like they were very upset about it. And I was listening to it, and I really started to think that maybe it wasn't so much about coffee and donuts, maybe it was somebody had poorly worded the budget. Right? Because instead of saying coffee and donuts, what if it had said, Hospitality to feed those who come to us hungry on the Sabbath. What if it had said, this is gonna be our ministry of welcoming the stranger so that they feel that they can stay with us. And they can break bread with us, even though it's in donut form. And they can lift their cup with us, even though it's a mug of coffee. But that way, we can live out the scriptures. That would probably have had a better impact than coffee and donuts, $100,000. Because $100,000 is a lot of money to me. A lot of money to me. And I'm pretty sure that if you opened our budget and you found out that we spent almost a quarter of it on coffee and donuts, you'd all have things to say. But again, what are we doing with what we have? And how are we telling that story? What is it that we're doing? Because Jesus is paying attention. It's very clear that Jesus was paying attention to the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and the lawyers. He's paying close attention because these are some of the best and the brightest, the blessed. And they should be the ones that are helping God's people. But what are they doing? Um, Building monuments to the very same people that they would have killed if they had been alive in that day. Uh, Making sure that other people felt totally burdened by... The mosaic law and covenant so that people started to resent not only it but the God who gave it not helpful not helpful but all of us have been given great potential all of us and then collectively our potential is magnified together what can we do what are we being called to do today because yes Every generation, including ours, is making mistakes because unlike Jesus, we're not God incarnate. But are we paying attention? Those of us who have access not only to the scriptures but to the traditions and the history, are we learning lessons? Are we keeping the things that were good? Are we going on to brother and the things that aren't? Are we making sure that we keep our religiosity and our spirituality tied together perfectly so that we are tithing? And yet, at the same time, tending to justice and love? Are we doing those things? Or is it really just about what we really like? Have we become an indwelling people? Because that's not what Jesus came here for, to just make us feel better about being comfortable. And if that makes you uncomfortable, then welcome to snarky Jesus. Because that's what he did. He made some people uncomfortable. But it wasn't because he enjoyed people being uncomfortable. In fact, he so unenjoyed people being comfortable that he cured people and he welcomed people and he loved people and he forgave them so that they could see that they don't have to be uncomfortable in their mind, in their bodies, in their hearts, and in their souls. He wanted them to know God's comfort. And we can do that. And we can do it in a way that only we can do it because we are the only ones who are together in this way, in this place, in this time. And so God expects us to do things that only we can do with God's help. And so the next time you feel yourself edging into that realm of snark, the next time you feel that spiritual gift awakening within you of sarcasm, think about what snarky Jesus might say to you. And think about how you can transcend the bondage and the slavery that the Pharisees and the lawyers found themselves in, and not be bound by what you think, but what God calls you to. And be liberated to love and to pursue justice and to tend to your spirituality and your religiosity but also to tend to your neighbor. May it be so, for God has not only great expectations for us, but God has given us great grace in order to rise and meet them. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.